Hello, welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. My name is Craig Johnson. Uh, this week, uh, we're going to continue to talk about the political disappearances uh, currently being enacted in the United States, uh, some saber rattling between the United States and China, a major topic in uh, nationalism. Uh, and also, we're going to be, we're not commemorating, uh, but noting uh, the birthday of Benito Mussolini. All right, so to get started, uh, continuing on from last week, uh, when I talked about uh, the political disappearances or you know something that looks like disappearing um, in Portland, uh, we've seen you know, over the last week a lot of reports and developments uh, on that story. Um, specifically, the acting chief of the Department of Homeland Security, a guy whose name is, no joke, Chad Wolf. Um, has basically doubled down on this strategy, um, saying that he's going to bring it to other major cities in the United States, ones bigger and more diverse than Portland. Uh, and Trump has also um, endorsed this strategy and is going to continue to implement it, uh, apparently, or, well, we can assume, uh, throughout the remainder of his first term. Uh, the first city that they appear to intend to target uh, with this particular kind of state violence is Chicago. Uh, for those of you who've paid attention to Trump's nationalist and racist rhetoric, this should be no surprise. Uh, Chicago has long been a target of his uh, derision and racism. Uh, he talks about the city as, you know, sort of like, in his words, like a cesspool of violence and criminality. Uh, what he means is that the city is. Uh, you know, not a good place to do business. That's sort of what his critique is. Now, for those of you who've ever been to Chicago, lived there, grown up there, heard about it, or even if you haven't, uh, Chicago is a, you know, extremely large major city in the United States. It's one of the country's more diverse. Uh, white people are not a majority in the city of Chicago. Um, uh, the city has suffered from a lot of economic problems uh, since the 1970s and 80s, uh, like many other major cities in the country. But unlike, you know, say, New York, uh, the recovery hasn't functioned in exactly the same way. Um, as heavy industries have left the United States, uh, many people have been left without jobs. Uh, there's been less investment, a lot of white flight to the suburbs, that sort of thing. Uh, all of which is to say Chicago is not doing as well as it could be. Um, but uh, when Trump talks about it, what he means is like, you know, that it's violent or that the people there are crazy or something. Uh, this is straight race. This is just straight up racism. It's that's that's what he means. Uh, he is critiquing it as a city that is uh, predominantly populated by people of color. That's his problem with it. All right. So bringing the DHS to Chicago uh, in a way that it, you know, isn't already uh, as a city that has a large Latino population and a large undocumented population, Chicago is uh, no stranger to state violence uh, from the DHS and from ICE. Um, but bringing this sort of like street enforcement, like goon squad stuff uh, to the city uh, will be something that maybe hasn't been seen there for you know, maybe arguably 50 years since the 68 Democratic National Convention. Uh, the Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot, uh, a Democrat, of course, it's Chicago, um, recently had a call with President Trump about bringing these DHS people there. Um, and she relented. She said, yeah, you know, uh, 
the president can do this. Um, this should teach you that uh, relatively liberal populations do capitulate to fascist creep. Um, that's just one of the things that they do because, unfortunately, they espouse the same logic of criminality as opposed to uh, economic downturn and economic problems. Uh, they talk about you know personal choices as opposed to systemic violence, uh, and they ignore uh, the role that uh, economic and social structures play in shaping the choices that people make. And so when fascists organize and, you know, espouse rhetoric that is roughly parallel with theirs, they can't really do anything about it. Uh, I want to bring up another thing uh, regarding this uh, disappearances thing. It seems like Trump is mainly, uh, and his allies are also mainly talking about um, these activities as being anti-crime. Uh, that shouldn't surprise anybody. Um, it is not necessary for Trump to talk about these as explicitly political acts, at least yet. Um, although they are clearly explicitly political acts, he is using state violence in order to arrest, attack, and we can assume someday kill uh, political opponents of his. Um, but talking about it in terms of crime is a way to make it sort of, you know, ideologically palatable to a lot more people uh, than if he had just said like, hey, we got to go, we got to crush those libs, um, those communists, those progressives. Um, in this sense, uh, it can be compared to the ideology of uh, President Duterte in the Philippines, uh, who does similar things. You know, he cracks down on urban spaces, he cracks down on uh, populations, people, organizations that oppose him uh, in the name of anti-crime. Uh, Trump has long taken plays from Duterte's playbook, uh, so this is uh, not a surprising development, although it is a disturbing one. Moving on, uh, we'll talk about some international business uh, that the United States right is currently engaged in, uh, and that is something called saber-rattling. Saber-rattling uh, means that, you know, it, it, it it's sort of supposed to evoke the image of a general, you know, shaking his sword uh, in the direction of an opponent uh, to try to make them scared or to try to drum up support. Um, it's, uh, it's a little bit of a belittling, you know, sort of image, and that's the intended uh, context that I'm using it in. Uh, specifically, the United States uh, government, uh, the federal government under Trump, uh, the Senate, uh, the Republican Senate, and also a lot of Democrats, uh, have been saber-rattling with China for years now. Uh, now that the uh, coronavirus pandemic has really settled in for the long haul, uh, that is not going to change. Uh, we've talked about this several times on several previous weeks, and there's commentary about this all over the place. Um, but talking about it specifically from a nationalist perspective, uh, one of the things you have to understand is that nationalist leaders um, and uh, nationalist followers love a good war um, because as discussed previously uh, fascism specifically and also much of the right wing in general has a relationship with violence as a political tool and tactic and sort of like edifying measure uh, that is distinct uh, among political ideologies uh, fascists think that violence is good uh, in many ways nationalists think that violence is good uh, when it is in the interest of the nation uh, and so it's not necessarily as if 
I mean, I don't know. It's possible that there are people in the United States military, you know, in the upper echelons who actually think that a war would be a good thing. But on an ideological systemic level, the United States is careening in that direction. Uh, some recent moves that we've seen uh, have been deploying ships uh, and troops uh, to uh, islands uh, between China and Japan or between the Philippines and China um, in the South and East Chinese seas. Uh, these are islands that have been disputed uh, between China and its regional neighbors for decades um, and are in large part the reason that there are so many United States troops uh, already, you know, even before this current sort of surge, uh, were already stationed in the region. Uh, the islands themselves have very, 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 very little value. It's possible that some of them have some offshore oil, but not a massive amount. Uh, it's possible that some of them have some value in terms of securing, you know, fishing rights or something like that, but that's not what this is about. Uh, this is about zones of uh, fricture, uh, is one of the things that uh, political science scientists call them. Uh, these are places where competing spheres of power uh, intersect. Um, and where those spheres of power sort of rub up against each other, there's, there's friction. Uh, so this is a place that the United States and China have been sort of edging, you know, on each other's toes about uh, for a long time. Uh, and this particular escalation in the midst of a global pandemic, uh, which demands international cooperation and is instead being met uh, by nationalist sort of you know, guarding of all of our medical secrets, uh, as if, you know, as if that's how science worked, like whoever gets the first vaccine wins or some shit. Um, we're also seeing uh, other developments uh, in this, uh, the closing of the Chinese consulate in Houston, uh, apparently without warning. Uh, some of the former employees of that consulate have now since received death threats um, from nationalists. Um, Unfortunately, uh, you know, internationalism uh, is real. And what this means is that nationalism in the United States is not isolated. It interacts with nationalism in other countries. Specifically, nationalism in the, in the United States empowers nationalism in China. No surprise, right? Uh, if, you're if you are a nationalist and your perspective is that, hey, other countries hate us, want to see us fail, want to see us die, don't want to help us, and the United States does crap like this, you know, you would be vindicated. You know, you might realistically see, see this as like a sign that you were right and that the United States really is, you know, your enemy, uh, that Americans really are your enemy uh, in the way that American nationalists think that China is their enemy or that people of Chinese descent are their enemy. Um, it should go without saying, if you've been listening, uh, that I am an internationalist. Uh, I think that all of this is uh, bullshit of the worst kind, uh, because it's not just factually wrong and morally repugnant, it's incredibly dangerous. Uh, because uh, as a historian, I have to remind almost everybody listening uh, who has not lived through a major global conflict of the kind that uh, we saw uh, in the early 20th century, uh, that I can tell you that that remakes the world in a way that even this current pandemic could not hold the candle to. Uh, it could be extremely dangerous. 
And even if it doesn't come to war, hopefully it doesn't, and it probably won't, um, this kind of nationalist fervor uh, is going to worsen the lives of millions of people. Uh, we're talking about people of Chinese descent in the United States, people who depend on economic cooperation between the United States and China, uh, millions of people who have or are going to have the coronavirus and could, you know, really use two of the world's major powers cooperating scientifically to produce a response. Um, you and I are we're going to suffer from this, whoever you are. So uh, that's that. Finally, a little bit uh, on the birthday of Benito Mussolini, uh, the first uh, explicitly, you know, definitely necessarily no qualifications fascist leader. Uh, in the history of the world. Uh, so Mussolini was born on uh, July 29th, 1883. Uh, he was a World War I veteran, uh, which uh, was a very formative experience in his life. Um, he uh, had a history of education, um, but not particularly distinctive education. Um, and he, after the war, and also during it, um, like many young people of his age, um, became not enamored, but interested uh, in socialist politics and leftist politics. Um, however, to hear him tell the story and to hear most of his biographers tell the story, uh, the experience of the war uh, and the experience of uh, economic deprivation afterwards uh, turned him against socialism and toward uh, an ideology that had been percolating around the world previously, but which he was the sort of first major, really successful distiller of something that we now call fascism. Um, this has led him to sometimes be described as a Marxist heretic. Uh, what this means is that the commentators who use this term, uh, this is, you know, common among people who think that fascism and socialism are related in some capacity. Um, uh, I can tell you that they are not. Um, except uh, in that fascists often use the word socialism in their names. Uh, what this means is that uh, fascists are talking about the people, fascists talk about the populace, fascists talk about uh, benefiting most people, but that's not just something that they share with socialism, that's something that they share with all modern ideologies. I think that that's just a hallmark of modernism. Uh, in any case, Mussolini was also uh, heavily influenced by the ideology and uh, commentary of a man named Sorrel, uh, who is a critical theorist uh, in the time, uh, who advocated not for a materialist concept of reality, a la, you know, standard Orthodox Marxism, um, but instead for a sort of mythic, imagined, realized, conceived of, created version of reality, uh, something that could be produced. Um, he thought that uh, the way to motivate people was to create uh, violent myths of, you know, of, of, of the nation or of the class. Um, this is not doing Sorrell's ideology justice. If you're interested, you should actually read his stuff. It's pretty interesting. And, and some of it's very creepy, but some of it's very interesting. Um, but the point is that Mussolini fused his um, ideology uh, of, you know, we've been robbed, you know, the future has been taken from us uh, with this uh, violent vision of uh, a political future. And that is a, you know, one potential short description of fascism. Uh, he later led that party uh, to victory 
against the left and progressives uh, in a series of elections and also partisan warfare, uh, and took power in Italy after something called the March on Rome, uh, in which he and uh, a bunch of other fascists, you know, walked to Rome. Um, As it turns out, uh, a lot of that was sort of like a stunt. Um, The power sharing agreement that he had come to uh, with other conservative parties uh, and uh, with the king of Italy, King Victor Emmanuel III, uh, had already been reached. Uh, This was sort of like a show so that it could seem as if uh, something triumphant, new, you know, reinvigorating had happened, right, to create a myth. Uh, Mussolini ruled Italy until 1943, uh, when the Allies invaded southern Italy. Um, uh, he was captured and put in jail. He was then broken out of jail by Nazi commandos. Um, those Nazi commandos later became uh, consultants uh, for Perón and like several other South American dictators, but that's a story for another day. Um, after he was broken out of jail, he became the leader of a rump state. Um, that is a sort of like, you know, appendage of a former country, usually a puppet of some bigger one. Uh, this rump state uh, ruled northern Italy uh, after the Germans invaded northern Italy in order to prevent the Allies from invading northern Italy. Uh, this did not work. Uh, he, Mussolini was uh, uh, then captured and murdered um, by his, you know, former citizens, subjects. Uh, This is the famous picture that you may or may not have seen of Mussolini hanging from a bridge. Um, All of which is to say, yeah, uh, he was not the most brilliant fascist theorist. He was not the most dangerous. Uh, He was not the most uh, violent uh, or murderous of all the fascist leaders in history. Uh, But he was the first, and now he is dead. Good riddance.